Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hi folks, Oliver here. This week I interview Mina Nada, CEO of Bolt Bikes, about their business leasing e-bikes to delivery workers. Given everything happening in the space right now with COVID-19 and the explosion in delivery-based meal consumption, this is a fascinating interview. I've been meaning to get Mina on for a while and I was great to finally have a chance to do it, including right at this time. I think you'll find it really valuable. In the meantime, you've likely heard that the Micromobility Conference has been postponed until July at this stage. In the meantime, we're doing a lot more in the Triple M space or Micromobility Membership space, including calls with Horace, interviews with industry leaders like manufacturers and operators trying to understand what's going on and the like. Given that most of you are either in lockdown or soon to be, this should be accessible to most of you. Check out micromobility.io for more. And in the meantime, here's the interview with Mina. And welcome back to Micromobility. Uh, we have with us today Mina Nardo from Bolt Bikes. Where are you today, Mina? I am working from home in Sydney today. Yeah, cool. Nice. You guys on lockdown as well, I take it? The office staff are working from home and, and our retail staff, so our mechanics and the people that, that deal with leasing out bikes back and forth are considered an essential service to support during deliveries. And so they are operating, albeit under different circumstances. So we split up our teams and working in different locations to allow for, for business continuity and less density of people in, in a space. But yeah, we're, we're still going. Yeah, cool. Crazy times, crazy times. Because everything's evolving super quickly, today is what, March the 24th? There's now 30,000 cases in the US, 300,000 cases globally. Uh, New Zealand went into lockdown yesterday. Uh, it's kind of a crazy time. But yeah, hey, look, one of the things that uh, has been very interesting is the fact that like delivery, food delivery in this during these kind of periods of lockdown and the COVID-19 crisis have been have exploded. And I wanted to talk to you uh, because obviously Bolt Bikes is, is a very quickly growing supplier of the bikes and the vehicles in the micromobility space to allow these careers to operate. So I thought maybe it would be useful. Can you just take us through Bolt Bikes, how they work, where you guys have set up and where you're operating? Yeah, certainly. So the story of Bolt Bikes started back when I was at Deliveroo, one of the, the big food delivery companies that was born around 2013. I was their first hire in Australia. And back then, I could see that e-bikes were probably the most efficient way to move things from A to B for this particular group of, of things that needed to be delivered for a variety of reasons. Like you can drive it without a license. You don't need registration. You don't need insurance. You can park on the footpath. And in you know Europe and the US, you can go up to 45 kilometers per hour, 28 miles per hour, which makes them basically the fastest vehicles for getting things from A to B in most urban areas. And if you live in New York City, you'll, you'll see heaps of these e-bikes around. They're, they're usually illegal because of the, the nature of regulations in New York City. So that's just been repealed as far as I understand. Not necessarily repealed, but the, the mayor of New York City said that he's not going to be enforcing those crackdowns, which they, which they usually do in New York, because these food delivery guys are so important to keeping the city alive during these strange times that we're in. But yeah, back in, back in 2017, saw that this was a trend and really a, a new reality 
the technology was still relatively new. And really just as a, as a GM back then in, in food delivery was getting into a lot of trouble because my deliveries were taking longer because we were using cars and regular bikes back at HQ. And so started to try to get more e-bikes into the into the fleet, but realized that, that you know, specifically for food delivery couriers, they had a unique uh, situation. Most of them were, they're all gig workers, but most of them had a very short tenure on their job. They were just doing it between jobs or they're fresh immigrants or they were students uh, and they couldn't afford to buy these things. Uh, and so we realized that A, the right vehicles don't exist for them. B, the right financing structure doesn't exist. They can't even get credit cards in the first place. So I tried to get Deliveroo in the day to kind of get into it, but but was told, look, it's not really our core business. It's highly you know capital intensive and there's a risk for us to be providing vehicles to our gig workers. And so it's not really something we want to touch. So back then I reached out to my current co-founder, Michael Johnson, who who used to work with me at Bain & Co., kind of a consultancy that we were at uh, earlier. And we just started buying some bikes off the shelf, adapting them and leasing them out on a week-to-week basis to kind of offer that flexibility that gig workers needed. And it was really just a side hustle for a couple of years until we really started to get some traction towards the start of 2019 and I decided to go full-time at that point. And actually at the Micromobility Conference in, I think, February or, or thereabouts in 2019. End of January, yeah, yeah. I remember we met on the ferry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we met on the ferry on, on the way back. Um, and, yeah. and that was where um, I met for the first time Maneve, who, who were our, ultimately ended up being uh, the lead investors for us in our, in our seed round. And they completed that investment in June. And, you know, while I was in San Francisco, I met with the food delivery companies, Uber Eats and DoorDash and, and those guys. And they all said, look, you know, we have this same need. We have the same problem. There's no one solving this problem for us. Um, if you can fix it, then, then we're here to help. And so I was pretty encouraged by that. And, and after we raised that uh, initial round in, in June, launched in San Francisco and, and London to prove out that the model exists in these other, you know, common law, English speaking markets with similar laws around gig workers and you know where I was familiar with the way food delivery works. Yeah, we, we, we built the team and, and have been offering essentially customized food bikes for, for e-bikes for food delivery in those markets, specifically for gig workers, which has been you know a very rapidly growing market for many years, is forecast to continue to be so and, and is one of, if not the it's definitely not the biggest delivery segment, but is is definitely one of one of the bigger ones. And so for the bikes that you run, typically what sort of, can you reveal what size of your fleet you're running in each of these different cities and, and how that works? Our fleet today is, is four figures and we'd like to get you know, much bigger than that over the, over the coming 12 months. The demand is, is pretty similar in, in, in all the markets. So, so we're seeing kind of rapid growth in, in all the markets that we're planning in. So obviously you've picked e-bikes as the way that you're thinking about this. Are you using still just standard off-the-shelf bikes or are you looking at are there bikes already kind of custom designed for like food delivery at the moment um, the interesting thing is there's there's not really the right bikes that suit this particular use case i mean you know even people ask me oh why don't people use scooters and you know the basic thing with scooters is they're not really made for people to sit down our couriers are you know riding eight hours plus per day they're carrying a load they're pushing the vehicles really hard it's a commercial use case and, and our users are not really they're kind of small mini businesses they're micro entrepreneurs but they're not consumers either they're probably this prosumer bucket and they have really specific needs and they use our bikes to to make a living 
they need them to serve their purposes in particular ways. And so no one's put that much thought into it. Or, or actually, there are people using you know e-bikes for delivery in China at a pretty large scale. But the bikes that are made over there are you know not fit for the regulations that are in place in in the rest of the world, especially in Europe and, and Australia and, and, and the US. They're not necessarily made for fleet purposes. So, you know, again, in addition to the customer use case, there's also the, the matter of the fact that we're, we're managing a fleet. And so we're also very conscious on quality and maintenance and safety. And we realize that we spend actually as much on maintenance as we do on the vehicles themselves. And so we're very focused on getting quality components and building a vehicle that lasts. And so for a variety of reasons that relate to both the use case of the, of the particular uh, customer and the way that we are actually managing a fleet, there's not actually the right vehicles for this that, that exist. You know, people definitely make do. And, and, you know, in New York, you'll see a lot of couriers that are riding around with bikes that like have glad wrap, I'm not sure what cling wrap basically wrapped around their batteries because they're buying these like super cheap e-bikes that have been imported from China. But, you know, if the rain gets into the batteries, they they break down. And so they're, right. they're, they're literally yeah. wrapping them with cling wrap. And, and we actually even start to see that, you know, here in Sydney, I see a bunch of these guys. And so, you know, th- there's not the right vehicle yet that suits these guys' needs. And because batteries are so expensive and they're, and they're you know, needing really large batteries to, to push so hard all day, every day, that's the bit where they're trying to be cheap. And, you know, you can get a cheaper bike with a larger battery if you kind of are happy to compromise on certain quality and safety components, which, which are things that, that we're not doing. Yeah. So you say a courier works for eight hours. What's the sort of mileage that they'll do? And then what's the sort of range that a vehicle might have at this stage? Yeah. I mean, our guys are doing over a thousand kilometers, you know, up to a couple of thousand kilometers a month. And it depends, it depends on, on the use case again. So, so if you're a gig worker, you might be doing 20 hours a week, but if you're, because you're mixing it around, you're working in your other job or you're, you're a student. However, if you're a full-time uh, if the bike is kind of actually loaned out to a shop that uses that bike with multiple workers using the bike, then, then it does a lot more hours than that. So there are a lot of variables built into that. But the, the reality is that, you know, the average delivery distance, you know, you can kind of take a pretty good estimate of that and, and then multiply that by the number of deliveries that people do per day and, and multiply that out by the number of hours per day that, that people are working. And, and you can get a feel for, you know, the high degrees of mileage that these vehicles are being put through. And I guess what's impressive, I've been speaking to like my my colleagues in, in the micromobility space and I guess my background, I, I was at Mobike, the first kind of mover in this dockless space where we had about 7 million bikes around the world and, and I, was, I was managing a big ton of them across Southeast Asia. The maintenance that's required for our bikes at Bolt compared to the electric scooters that are used for shared mobility is actually much less because we've actually using quite expensive components and we're building bikes that are made for heavy duty logistics use. It's kind of like the F-150 or the Toyota Hilux in, in kind of the, in Europe of micromobility. It's this commercial use case that we're, that we're solving for. I can see that the, um, you know, I mean, even if to just, as you say, do the math, extrapolate three kilometer average distance, you go there and back six Ks, you do that two times, three times an hour, you do that for eight hours, you're sort of up to what, like 70 K, 80 K for a shift per se, you know, perhaps you even higher because most e-bikes that I think of don't really have necessarily even that level of range at the moment, unless you kind of go higher end or you get, as you say, you get a really big chunky battery. What are you seeing? Because I, I would say that the flip side to this is that instead of doing something like an e-bike, you go to like a moped. How is a delivery gig worker thinking about it from that calculation between a standard bike 
riding an e-bike or doing an e-moped or even just a standard moped and then how do you guys position yourselves within that yeah i think one of the really amazing things is that you know especially with our class three bikes that we're using in in say the us we're finding that our deliveries are even faster than the motorbikes and, and mopeds and you know that's even though those vehicles are uncapped on their speed obviously you know the class three bikes are, are capped at 28 miles per hour you know, if you buy a motorbike then you can go i don't have my mileage kilometers conversion perfect but you know you can go 100 kilometers per hour i don't know it's like 60 70 miles or something i'm not sure what that is per hour yeah 60 miles yeah and we're finding that despite that you know our partners in in the food delivery aggregators have found that our couriers are the fastest in their fleet and i think that says you know that the reality is that cities cap their speed limits at 30 miles per hour anyway or 50 kilometers per hour when you layer on the fact that our bikes can often use bike lanes or pull over on the footpath and are not exposed to the same parking restrictions that motorbikes are, they actually end up making up for whatever they lack in terms of access to speeds above the 28 miles per hour point. So net net, the entire trip is faster because you don't have the faffing around at either end. Yeah. And you can, you know, pull your vehicle all the way into the foyer of a big tower or whatever it might be compared to even as a motorbike or a moped trying to find a spot to pull into that's not a no stopping zone or, or whatever it might be. And then the other kind of factor here is I think we, we did make a decision pretty early that even though we, uh, we could make some money renting out mopeds that are petrol powered it's not the future that these are technologies that will be electrified in kind of the not too distant future having said that the reality is that mopeds today if they're going to be electric are too expensive to access that higher speed that is you know what you get when you move to a, a moped you need to put a lot more battery power in there and then you have a trade-off which is either you buy you know you're paying a lot to get the the moped which is battery powered which um, can you know meet those those higher speed requirements and range requirements or you end up trying to buy a really cheap moped and you cap the speed limit at 28 or 30 miles per hour anyway and you put a smaller battery in which case, you know, well, you know, we can make a bike that has a bill of materials that's much cheaper than a moped that has, you know, the same top speed and requires a smaller battery because there is some pedaling that's still involved compared to, you know, being a pure throttle machine that's much heavier in the case of a moped. So, you know, where technology is today, I don't think that um, there are some people who are doing some pretty amazing stuff with with mopeds and, and the technology they're putting in them, but but to get the really good quality electric mopeds you know, you end up ending up spending a lot of money on, on them or to bring the cost down so that it's affordable for an everyday courier, then, you know, you're really cutting out the, the utility of it being a moped. Yeah, I hear you. I was thinking about the NIUs, which is what Revel uses in New York. You know, in part, I was thinking about it because, as you say, you can roll a, an e-bike into the foyer of a large tower. But what happens when you start getting way out into the suburbs? Because I don't know... How is the dynamic of, of delivery changing over time? I My impression, and I don't know this super well, but I had a lot of friends who read Uber Eats, and the thing that was is obviously, yes, it was very centered in the CBD in the beginning, but actually over time it really started to spread out, and the suburbs ended up being this sort of like this gold mine of deliveries, uh, which once you expanded into the service area and you built up the sort of the restaurant supply, then actually people were really into it. Would you not look at these kind of larger vehicles as you get further out, or do you not really see the differential play out that much? There's still kind of enough of a benefit from being able to do parking and other sort of things that you don't need to have those higher speeds necessarily with the mopeds. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean as I think about, we, we've just hired our, our launcher for New York, and and she's you know doing a lot of the customer conversations for us around Brooklyn and Queens and, and those areas for us to understand the market there. And, and my sense is those city, those parts of that city are still, you know, hyper dense and, 
Again, you know, you don't need a vehicle that goes over 28 miles per hour to efficiently service those areas because of the, the speed limits that are already in place for most of the, those areas. You know, does it make sense to be capped at 28 miles per hour or 45 kilometers per hour if you're trying to do to move between San Francisco and San Jose? No, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. You, you need a car realistically to, to do that distance. But we've we found that even in our existing markets, e-bikes are being used for, I'm not going to say, you know, suburban in terms of like the deep suburbs, but that are far out, but definitely residential areas that are surrounding urban cores. These vehicles are still being used. And, and I think the interesting thing about the new use is I believe they're still capped at 30 miles per hour. So, so there's like not that much differential at that point, but I, I could be wrong on that point. Yes. That is accurate. I think they're capped at 50 kilometers an hour. With the expansion and delivery, or that's happened really in the last couple of weeks, I mean, are you seeing any interesting insight or data that coming through from your bikes? And then how, how do you collect that as well? I'm kind of curious just for, for folks who, who are maybe come to this and trying to understand, you know, what level of intelligence you'd have on your bikes and things like that as well. Yeah, it's, it's been an absolutely hectic period for us in the last couple of weeks trying to get a grip on, on what's going on. Deliveries going up or down. You know, first we had a rush of customers saying, no, no, it's all gone quiet. Deliveries are down. We spoke to our contacts at the delivery companies and they're telling us deliveries are up. In some places, you know, rentals are surging. In other places, we're having a rush of returns. And, you know, the world is just totally different to what it was a couple of weeks ago. And so, you know, I think we've gotten as good a grip as we can today, although the world could be completely different tomorrow, right? Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and so, you know, what we're seeing is, well, you know, food delivery is down in CBD, you know, financial district areas, and then it's surged in residential areas. And, you know, even lunchtime has really exploded for a bunch of cafes and, and restaurants that are, that are in residential areas. There are, there are different dynamics going on with, with our customers in that, you know, historically in some areas we, we were, you know, a lot of our customers were internationals. Now a lot of these internationals want to go home now because they're, they're worried about their families or, or they're just worried about coronavirus. But then on the other hand, we're getting a lot of inbound requests now from people who've just been laid off, whether they're hospitality workers or whatever it might be, who also see, especially if they're waiters, that, you know, those restaurants are now relying on, on delivery a lot more. We're kind of tapping into a lot of new business that we're seeing related to just this, this transformation. On the other hand, you see some restaurants are, are completely closing down, but at the same time, while some restaurants are completely closing down, you know, in all markets that we're operating, governments have said that you know, food processing is an essential service that needs to be protected. Logistics and courier businesses are essential services that need to be protected. And you know, the, the mechanics and so on that support those essential services are, are also you know, allowed to work. The restaurants that have kept open and that actually have a loyal following, like, you know, last night I went to one of the biggest sort of restaurant areas in, in Sydney, the biggest, the, the lot's called Newtown. It's one of the, it is the longest chain of independent restaurants in, in like in the Southern Hemisphere. And it was fairly quiet. Admittedly, it was a Monday night. But the restaurants that were open and still kind of kicking and still had a thriving delivery and takeaway trade were the ones that were known for their, you know, famous vegan pizzas or, or whatever it might be. And they have their own following. I think if you're a restaurant or a cafe, cafe that survives on just random foot traffic, you know, no one's going to be having a yearning for that coffee from the random shop that I walk past on the way to the office in the morning anymore. And so there are probably going to be less restaurants open, but they will probably be busier as, you know, other ones shut down. Yeah, it would be interesting to record this in about a month. And this is my, you know, slightly bearish case on all of this is just looking at it like most restaurants have about two weeks worth of cash. And if you're down 80%, it's going to be very challenging for a lot of them to make it through. And I don't know how that's going to play out in the, in the medium term in a lot of economies. 
but we are where we are at the moment. You know, I hope for, obviously hope for those guys' sake that everything, we, we will kind of work out a, a way to kind of keep everybody going in the medium time. Yeah, it's, it's a really challenging environment. And, and for us, you know, where we are speaking to those restaurants who are, obviously a lot of governments are, are giving out various, a bunch of stimulus to support these businesses through their tough times. The, the restaurants are, com- are happy that they're at least allowed to do delivery and take away. And we're doing various offers to help them to work through that period and to, and to kind of uh, carry on with some sort of bridge over, you know, this is a tough time. And I think, you know, we've got one and a half billion people who are staying at home around the world and that number might continue to increase. But, you know, there will be a light at the end of it. And it is good to see China coming back online and to give us all hope that there is there is light at the end of this tunnel if we can manage it, manage it well. And so it is really about keeping everybody on some sort of life support through the next couple of months to push through the, the darkest times. Absolutely. Obviously, you never forecast for this, but there was growth already. I mean, there was substantial growth in the delivery sector even before this, what's kind of the forecast of how you think that's going to go? And then in that, what are the vehicles there and why is micromobility interesting in that sort of job to be done space for delivery vehicles? So delivery varies a lot between long haul and last mile. So obviously moving things from ports uh, to warehouses and from warehouses to cities is, is a type of freight but then the last mile, which is delivering to the actual final destination, is where micromobility can really stand out and, and be more efficient. But even in that in that trip, there are substantial differences between delivering food and pharmaceuticals and groceries and parcels. You know, all of that is increasing with the movement of, you know, with urbanization, with you know, obviously with quarantine and people being at home and not going to retail stores with the movement from two day to one day to same day to on-demand delivery, you know, happening across the board and and the the customer expectations increasing about the speed with which they can get delivery. And so at a macro level, you can see that the number of deliveries is increasing, especially at the last mile. So companies like FedEx and UPS and their kind of public pronouncements are saying they make less money on these last mile deliveries because it's just, it's more handholding to get something to that very last mile. And they're seeing more and more of their business becoming B2C rather than B2B as consumers order more and they see their margins go down on the back of that. And so they're all looking for ways to get more efficient on this on this basis. If you look in New York City, they've done a whole bunch of trials now with various forms of electric bikes because they're finding that they're spending millions of dollars. Like literally, I think last year, I think UPS and FedEx spent 25 million bucks just on fines in New York City, in Manhattan right. for parking tickets. <laughs> and so they've just done, you know, they've just gotten approval from the municipality over there to allow e-bikes to park in loading zones where, where they couldn't do that before. So overall, the, the trend is up. I think that this, you know, quarantine will lead to a bit of a, a step change or acceleration of behavior towards accepting home delivery. Maybe segments of the community that weren't going to do it, you know, elderly people were going to be slower to get to this because they're not up, up on the on the app as much or whatever it might be i think you'll see a massive spike but then you know post coronavirus the new normal will still be a higher amount of delivery than, than what was happening before even you know on the supply side you know just talking specifically about restaurants restaurants that had never touched delivery before and thought they were too good to be doing takeaway and now forced to do delivery and takeaway hopefully we'll all get back to normal and at that point i wouldn't be surprised if a bunch of them are choosing to continue doing delivery as well so i think on both supply and demand the new normal will be at a higher penetration of delivery than what we've had historically and, and if you look at markets in asia there's a much higher alliance on on delivery and a much higher penetration of delivery than in western markets where that hasn't been the case as much in Western markets historically. 
Yeah, absolutely. So talk me through infrastructure. You know, one of the things that we see with these vehicles is oftentimes, as you say, they're able to use bike lanes in some ways that makes them a little bit faster. They might be able to get to different areas of the city better. Do you have any data or do you have any insights around how these vehicles, you know, are able to navigate the city better? Do you have anything where you can kind of compare streets that had bike lanes versus not had bike lanes in terms of anything that you can see from your vehicles? Unfortunately, we're still pretty startup at this point. So while we're collecting data, we haven't yet, you know, and, and we're and we're kind of storing it up in our big warehouses. We haven't managed to do much fancy analysis on at that level of detail. I mean, anecdotally and intuitively, it makes sense to me that the infrastructure, that where the infrastructure exists, not only are deliveries faster, but also that the people are safer. And I think that that's another really critical thing. Because our, our customers are riding eight hours a day, they're riding hard, they're riding fast. Protecting them is, is something that's really critical to us and, and infrastructure is, is so important. So if we do believe that you know, deliveries can be made faster, our cities can be made more efficient, less congested, cleaner with this technology, then the infrastructure to support it makes sense, if not just for the speed, but fundamentally for the safety of, of these people who are doing this work and, and you know, to avoid them getting doored or, or whatever it might be that, that that's affecting them. I think the data is there and, and will show it. Unfortunately, we, we don't have, we haven't done the, the analysis yet to kind of match up the, you know, let's say the average speed of somebody on a, on a street without, without a bike lane with a, with a street that has a bike lane and, and match that all up. And even then you wouldn't necessarily know if that's materially different because in some ways it's someone who's riding an e-bike is going to be able to ride as fast whether or not they're in the traffic or not in the traffic it's just it's the perception of safety and the other the other things as well that are a little bit harder to measure just based on like gps data for example yeah for me for me the safety is the biggest one it's something that we've been you know very centered on in, in you know these guys are incentivized through the way that they're paid to ride fast to do more deliveries per hour and to work when they're tired you know, we want to make sure that they've got the vehicles that that support them to be, you know, bright and have, you know, from the vehicle side for, for safety to be really, really critical. But, you know, we would love if the cities that we worked with or worked in also kind of took that responsibility around infrastructure to ensure their safety as well. Yeah. So you did a raise with Maneve. We've had Michael Granoff on the show. He talked uh, very enthusiastically and effusively about your business. He was very excited about it. You've obviously raised some equity, and and if I understood it well, you you also raised some debt as well. And in, in that, one of the things that I was really interesting talking to the the folks at Revel about was that they had largely financed their entire fleet. Are you able to do the same thing with these vehicles? Is there a mature financing market for e-bikes at this stage? And how does that impact on, on your sort of capital availability? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And, you know, me and my co-founders all had private equity backgrounds where, you know, we were in, in you know, Bain is known as a, as a private equity focused firm. And, and, you know, we were in the teams that focused on, on that side of the business. And when you're in private equity, it's all about, you know, leverage and, and debt. And it was pretty clear to us that this, you know, asset is really should be financed through debt as quickly as possible. And, you know, that's because, you know, we're able to purchase the vehicles at, you know, extremely low wholesale prices relative to whatever an equivalent vehicle would be at retail. The rental yield is so high that we can pay down the vehicle in something like six months. They're lasting us like three years. And what we've found is, you know, because we've been operating since 2017, the oldest bikes that we have in the fleet, we're able to resell at something like 66% of the original price. They're hyper profitable assets. And so we took that story to lenders, to a number of lenders. And actually we've been pretty fortunate to receive you know, quite a few term sheets on debt. The financing that we've secured on the debt side, look, I'd say one thing that's challenging for us compared to a company like Revel is that e-bikes 
don't have a clear, as clear a, um, a residual value or resale market as mopeds and motorbikes, which which are a um, an existing asset class. So e-bikes are considered kind of a brand new asset class. So if I go to a typical asset financier, you know, they can just look up in their blue book or red book, whatever it is, you know, Yamaha 250, three yeah, years two, resales three years or whatever. They've done this for mileage, yeah. Yeah, they've, they've got this that security around it. So we've had to kind of work with more creative financiers and guys who are happy to, I guess, take a little bit more of a risk. We're paying a little bit more of an interest rate, you know, relative to your typical um, asset-backed approach. But it means that, you know, we're getting really awesome leverage on the capital costs of our, of our bikes. And it means that fundamentally, and I do think this is one of the thing, one of the risks for the other micromobility companies who are raising an exclusively equity that, you know, they're, they're just, they're capital intensive businesses and they have to come up with high valuations to justify all the cash infusion. It's not yet clear if those valuations are justified and, and are going to and are going to roll you know be validated in ultimately public markets or, or private trades whereas i think we've taken the approach that we have fundamentally a profitable business we have an asset that you know can be used as security you know it doesn't get it doesn't get written off in six months rather it lasts you know three years and it can pay off debt pretty quickly so we've worked with some really creative lenders who are happy to take that risk and you know they're focused obviously on like what's your operational cash burn it's not just about the the capex cost and you know we're an early stage business and there's an element of risk in there but we have managed to basically secure debt on on you know in a very early stage business that's now you know quite a large facility that we'll be able to to access as as the business grows that's fascinating, and I really applaud you for that because I think, as you mentioned about the the scooter companies, I think the worry that I have, especially around obviously the coronavirus, is obviously like had all of their businesses and Lime's gone and shut down eighty percent of their markets. Partly as a response to public health, partly as a response to the fact that demand has just fallen off a cliff and they can't really service that stuff. You just look at it and you go, as you say, it's incredibly expensive to finance that through equity and then find yourself in a position where you're not able to do it, even though, but I think a lot of that has just come because this is an immature asset class, as you say. I'm hoping that we can see that kind of expand out into other areas, like maybe that we can start seeing scooter companies being able to finance through these, you know, these mechanisms as well. Yeah, I mean, look, there's risks with debt, right? Like, I mean, if you align and you'd raised a bunch of debt, then then you know, you'd be probably likely that you're breaching covenants. You know, debt debt comes with with a lot more expectations around it, and it's a lot less flexible. You know, the great thing about equity is that it gives you you know cash buffer that lets you do you know what you want and take a lot more risks with with certain things and and you know push through downturn. So you know, I wouldn't be complaining if I was bird or lime that I've got you know however many hundred million dollars, hopefully still in the bank to kind of uh, hopefully see through a lot of this. And you know, in a in a complete and utter downturn, it's probably tougher to have to have lenders you know breathing down your neck saying, "Am I going to get my money back and, and when?" But at the same time, I think you know if you plan to build a sustainable business, you need to have both. We're actually receiving term sheets now for for a Series A raise, and and you know the idea is that the debt gives validation and confidence to the equity guys that they're getting leverage out of their equity investment. The debt guys want to believe that you know there there's enough you know capital cushion or they they call it hurt money that's there for <laughs> <laughs> for, for for when things go wrong. And so um, it's a bit of a chicken and egg. But I, I think now you know the way these kind of you know the facility works for us is the more equity that we raise as well, the more debt that we'll be able to access. So I think the important thing is to have the structures in place, and you know both parties can work together. Yep. 
So we've talked about Emopeds. You kind of have explained why you didn't want to do Emopeds. We've had Arkimoto on in the past, and I know that they've got a Deliverator product. So Arkimoto, just for, for folks who aren't familiar, is a three-wheeled motorbike style. They call it a fun utility vehicle. It was founded as based out of Eugene, uh, Oregon. At the moment, their vehicles are about $20,000. It's a sort of tandem seater two-wheeled motorbike but it has about 100, 100 miles of range, goes on motorways, goes or goes on highways, anywhere around the city, parks and motorbikes um, spaces. And then they've just very recently released that they're going to be doing a delivery version of this as well, which can carry, I think, up to like 300 kgs as well. Obviously, vehicles like that we can see are coming down the pipe as micromobility as a space grows. And there'll be a whole plethora of different vehicles that will emerge for different delivery types. You know, you've started with e-bikes, but you obviously should be looking at other areas. Would something like that be attractive? And if so, why so? And if not, why not? Yeah, I mean, I love what Arkhamoto are doing. I remember the first time I saw one on the streets in San Francisco, I was pretty besotted and, you know, it was cool because you can kind of step into one. I, I was I was tempted to step inside it, but I didn't. Um, don't don't know what alarms they've got got on those things. Um, yeah. And I mean, I'd love to take one for a ride or, or a drive. I think those guys are doing stuff which is like ultra high end, and the DNA of our business is kind of maybe you could call that sort of the, the Rolls Royce or, or the Bentley. And I think we are building more the Toyotas. So, you know, we manufacture in Asia, you know, our customers, you know, even this business started with just me and my co-founders own money. So for a couple of years, you know, we were just hyper-conscious on building a, a business where, you know, there were customers there that were paying and that, you know, that ultimately we weren't losing our, our own money in this. And so, you know, I guess where we came from has affected the way that we operate. And I guess being based in Sydney and having kind of teams operating, say, in, in Taiwan, which is the the world's, I guess, base for high-end bikes. And I think a large proportion of the, the high-end bikes in the US are, are made in Taiwan. You know, we're focused on building at much lower cost. So, you know, we can and we are, say, delivering 200 kilogram loads on e-bikes that are costing us, you know, less than three and a half thousand US dollars today. And I think we'll be able to do that at a you know much lower cost going forward. We don't have a lot of the bells and whistles. And I think over time, you know, we might, we might want to add things like, you know, coverage for the courier from weather elements, that sort of thing. But I suppose, you know, we've been very focused on just getting quickly to market, making sure that, you know, there's customers who want to buy our goods, who who are who can afford them fundamentally. And our customers have historically been, you know, the couriers themselves. So we've been extremely focused on right specking so that, you know, we over-index on the things that matter, for instance, like a large battery. And, you know, we under-index on, on things that, that are bells and whistles or, or luxuries or, or gold plating. So that's been the way that we that we approached it and and i think the other fundamental thing is i guess given my background in in sort of say mobike or or deliveroo and, and my co-founder also heavy duty operations is like we're focused on fleets and so that means that you know what we see is one of the biggest handbrakes that has prevented the take up of of micro mobility solutions in in the logistics space is the lack of repair facilities and, and maintenance because it's no good to you buying, you know, if you're Amazon, a thousand super fancy, you know, e-bike things, but actually, you know, if there's not the aftermarket service and repair for those, then if there's not the, the network of logistics that can, you know, brings in the spare parts, then if you're not running at 100% uptime on those vehicles, then, then they're no good to you. And that's a massive part of the infrastructure that's missing and that, that we're building. So, you know, we have, you know, a network of service centers across the cities that we operate in that can maintain the vehicles that we're providing. And so, you know, it's not just a pure hardware play 
the service is really critical. And if you're, you know, a bird or a lion, then then you know that that comes to you naturally. Um, I think if you're a hardware, if you're starting from being a hardware player and trying to offer these vehicles, then you know actually providing the aftermarket service is not is not necessarily something that comes naturally. We're focused on not just the hardware as well as the software integrations that you know our customers are looking for and you know in that case it's kind of the larger logistics companies are looking for that that you know can connect you know the vehicle data to their system so they can more efficiently allocate jobs but also fundamentally the servicing because they I spoke to one you know guy who who just you know bought a bunch of e-bikes in in New York to try and service demand and and he was like the logistics player and he was like look none of the bikes actually suit my my use case they're all breaking down I've had to like hire some bunch of mechanics, buy a bunch of tools. It's just not my core business. I don't want to be dealing with this. And so, you know, a big part of making this work, I think, is also being able to offer that basically full stack solution. And it's genuinely a solution, which is we offer you a vehicle that works, like not just the vehicle, because a car mechanic can't fix these things. A bike mechanic doesn't, you know, operate at the scale that's required to, to fix these things. They're not carrying the spare parts for your particular vehicles. And so when we go to a city, we don't just offer them the custom vehicle. We're also offering them the aftermarket service, which is important to maintain the uptime. Yeah, I um, very frustratingly, I have a boosted rev, which is like the electric scooter from boosted. Unfortunately, boosted have decided to shut down because they, they're getting uh, hammered by the Trump tariffs and among, among other things. And then I burnt out my front motor. They sent me a replacement one just before they went under. But it's just a giant pain in the ass to try and find a place that'll take it and fix it. And I just look at that and I go, the number of kind of third-party bikes that are being sold, you know, that are relatively low cost, but then they just have no repair facilities and all that sort of stuff. It's like you need all of those places to be able to make micromobility actually take off and be a sustainable long-term thing for us. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. And that's what our customers tell us from all the way from, you know, the gig worker who's just like, hey, I rented a bike from you guys and then I you know, gave it back because I went holiday, I came back. I thought I'd just buy an e-bike. I bought one that was super cheap off, you know, from Kmart, but it broke down and then, you know, the local bike shop held it for a week, which meant that I couldn't make money for a week. And so after it got fixed, I resold it and I came back to you guys because, you know, it's not just you guys have a better vehicle, but you ha- I have the peace of mind that if anything ever goes wrong, I can be working. And that's so important to me. And then, you know, if you kind of ramp that up to the, to the enterprise level, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, you know, I have this many deliveries to do as a business. I just need to assume that my vehicles are going to be operating and, you know, I can't do the deliveries and I miss my, I miss my, I, I piss off my customers I piss off my suppliers if, you know, my vehicles are breaking down. And so, you know, for micromobility to work, it's not just having the right vehicles, which is, you know, a tough thing in itself, but it's also the servicing on the other side of that to, to give the customers peace of mind that they can you know, rely on it. And it's, you know, as long as you're focused on consumers, then, you know, actually businesses make money off, you know, selling spare parts and, you know, customers don't mind so much if they can't ride their kind of fancy, you know, skateboard for a week. But, you know, once you get into the commercial space, the expectations are very, very different. And in some ways, it strikes me that that actually positions you incredibly well for being able to build out a consumer-based service at some stage on the back of that infrastructure as well. Is that something that you'd be looking at or considering for the future? No, I think we, you know, obviously my background was at was at Mobike and, you know, we had millions of bikes in, in that space. And we set up Bolt at a time when there was heaps of investment going into consumer, you know, micromobility all around the world. And, and we just took the view very early on that, um, you know, the bit that is under service right now is the commercial side, is the logistics side. And if you look out on the street, half the cars are moving people, but the other half of cars are, are moving things. 
And we just thought no one is applying the logic of micromobility in the logistics space, in the moving things space, which is at least half of the, the traffic. You know, there's the, let all the other companies kind of duel it out for in, in the consumer space. But, you know, we've got a head start. We've been doing this for a couple of years. You know, we have a point of view on, on how to make this work and, and a point of differentiation. And, and, you know, if you think about long haul electric vehicles, obviously everybody knows about Tesla. They're predominantly about moving people. But you've got some multi-billion dollar companies for moving things in the electric vehicle space like Rivian and Arrival that, you know, have just had commitments of 100,000 electric trucks from Amazon, taking a huge investment from them. So I, I do see that we don't need to play in the consumer space to build a really great company. There's, you know, the challenges are hard enough and not yet solved in the logistics space and the, and the opportunities are you know, truly big enough for us to keep focused on, on just trying to solve problems for, for businesses that are trying to move things rather than moving people. Yeah. You mentioned uh, just before that you, you said we manufacture in Taiwan. So at the moment you're buying by the sounds of things off the, off the shelf. Are you looking at doing your own manufacturing in, in Taiwan? Yeah, so so we have partners in Taiwan that are helping us with sourcing vehicles out of that out of that market. And so in every market we are testing a variety of third-party vehicles that we adapt to our own our own use case. But my, my sense is the longer term that's not gonna be the right solution and we know that's not the right solution and, and it even those vehicles are not serving our, our customers well. And so we have been developing a vehicle that we think is exactly what couriers need. And, you know, that'll be hitting the market, you know, this, this year and then we'll see what the response is from couriers. But we're pretty excited to bring, you know, a few years now of, of knowledge about this space into the market and, and see how the, what, what the feedback is from customers on, on the vehicle that, that we're bringing in. Yeah, awesome. And I guess in some ways it's fascinating that, you know, this is one of the things that I love about micromobility is this is like how modular and adaptable all of these things are because you think about what it would take to go on, you know, say for example, you're doing delivery vehicles that are standard, like a standard uh, internal combustion engine vehicle. Okay, cool. Go and build your own one. Yep, that's seven years worth of development and then tooling and a billion dollars to build a factory to go and build all these things. It's like, whereas with the highly modular kind of componentry and then the ability of being able to, because the vehicles aren't that big and you don't need to kind of spin up big production facilities or anything like that to be able to manufacture them. Can I ask how long that sort of, how long it's taken from being, okay, we were thinking about doing something to we're actually going to be able to ship something and have it in the hands of consumers, like what that timeline is like? Yeah, it, it really depends on how ambitious you want to be. I think for this first product, we were just focused on, look, we have a particular a particular spec in mind that um, no one is really you know, offering. Uh, and even when we ask current you know, manufacturers, can they build it for us? They, they've said no. We know that if we just partner with a contract manufacturer in Taiwan, say that we can, we can do it at the same cost as what we're paying anyway, especially at the scale you know, when you are ordering you know, container loads. At that point, it, it made sense. And for the very first what we're calling bolt zero it was very much about not trying to reinvent the wheel and trying to use as many existing components as possible and minimizing customization so there's been for that particular vehicle you know there's probably not likely to be more than like one patent that we apply for on, on the design and the rest of it is pretty much off the shelf but you know we're already building out our, our hardware team capability and, and hopefully you know for what will be the bolt one and kind of you know sort of the product roadmap thereafter you know assuming that this kind of you know uh, implementation goes well and there's really strong take up from, from our customers and we do see the reduction in operating costs and the willingness of customers hopefully to spend more on this vehicle than you know the ones going forward we've already got a pretty clear view of you know if we were able to purchase at a higher scale you know what would be the further customizations because if you believe that you're going to 
manufacture 10 or 20 or 50,000 of a vehicle, then it's worthwhile making an even more customized vehicle because you need to spend a little bit more upfront on your, you know, custom tooling and custom manufacturing. But, you know, you make that up through, you know, lower costs of, of, at, at a unit price later on. So the, the timeline will vary as your comfort around the volume that you're pushing out changes. Cool. So one of the things that I think is, is really interesting about your point around the consumer businesses and the, and the fact that, you know, yes, they're highly regulated and, and, and all that sort of stuff and nobody's really dealing with B2B, but it's, it's also that B2B doesn't have caps. You're not constrained in your ability to grow in the same way that, for example, Lime or Bird are who go and have to apply for, you know, uh, street permits and all this sort of stuff to be able to put their vehicles on the street. Surely that must obviously put you in good stead when you're going to talk to investors. Yeah, I think that, you know, by and large, when regulations support our business, so, you know, we are operating within the current um, spate of laws. Now, you know, there would be some laws that I'd love to change. For instance, in Sydney, you know, bikes are capped at 18 miles per hour, 25 kilometers per hour, whereas, you know, in, in the US and the UK, they're allowed to go much faster. And so there are some things that I'd like to be different. Having said that, you know, that hasn't, you know, that might ultimately cap our our penetration of fleets and, and make, you know, mopeds more attractive in, in the, you know, this market relative to e-bikes. Having said that, Sydney has still been our fastest growing market and remains our, our biggest market. And the demand for our services here is still super high. So we are a unique business in that there is, you know, there's a B2B marketing and, and sort of nurturing of lead side of it, but there's still a B2C advertising style. But ultimately, uh, we don't need the government to pre-approve us. We operate within the law. And, and really, fundamentally, regulations we're finding are increasingly supporting our business. So, you know, Market Street being locked down to cars, you know, in, I think last month, in introduction of um, emissions fees on, on non-electric vehicles in London, congestion charge and potentially coming into New York, you know, increasingly, you know, pedestrianisation of, of inner city areas. Uh, so all of these things are supporting, again, bikes over cars, motorbikes, mopeds, and fundamentally our business model. So it has been a welcome thing for me to not, you know, moving from Mobike where we were, you know, speaking to local governments and, you know, that's the longest lead time and they have the most stakeholders and, you know, think of an enterprise sale and then a government enterprise sale is the worst one that you don't want to get involved in. And so <laughs> a government enterprise sale in which the SLA is also enforceable by all of your citizens who come along and complain that your the vehicles are parked on the side of the road and it's like, you have to go move them. It's like, no. <laughs> yeah. So, so fundamentally those shared micro mobility businesses depend on using public space to operate. And so that's why they need the public, you know, authorities permission. And, and, you know, thankfully we operate much a bit more similarly to a Hertz or a thrifty rental style business, which means we just have our, our shops. People come to us, they, they rent the bikes from us. They, they hold onto them for several months and then return them at the end of their rental period. And they're responsible for charging the vehicles overnight in their own homes, which means that we don't really have the same rates of theft that other companies see. And fundamentally, you know, we're not leaving the bikes out on the street, um, which means that also we don't have those rates of theft and, and we don't have to get the government approvals to, to operate in the same way that, that your regular shared micromobility has to operate. Cool. Well, hey, look, we're right up on time, but look, this has been phenomenal. So interesting. And I really applaud you guys. I think, you know, it was funny. I used to run the vehicle solutions program when I was at Uber in for Australia and New Zealand, which was working out how to get like leased cars for drivers. And, you know, I ran that and then, and, but as I was doing that and helping set it up, I got really excited about the e-bike question for, for Uber Eats and really tried to actively explore it and push 
you know, found a couple of solutions and brought them in to talk to the Uber Eats team and blah, blah, blah. But it was all way too nascent and we weren't quite there yet. And so I, I, I've loved this idea right from the very beginning. And it's been really, it's, it's awesome to chat with you and just hear that it's really taken off because it is. I think they're perfectly well suited and it's an incredible niche that really proves all the benefits of, of micromobility in a, in a very, very tangible way that makes money, which is great. Just hats off to you. Very exciting to hear. Thanks, Alvin, and, and really love the work that you guys are doing here in, in, at Micromobility Industries and looking forward to attending the next uh, conference, which uh, will hopefully be in person and, and live once all these uh, trying times are over. Absolutely. Awesome. All right, mate. Thanks very much. Cheers. Have a good one.